And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with the wise and beloved Dr. Bear Paul Lando coming to you live and direct from the beautiful azure, crystal clear primary waters of the Smith River here up in the great state of Jefferson where freedom still reigns supreme. Summer is in uh, full kicking motion. We are loving our life here. Uh, so many people have come to visit us this summer. We thank you guys for all the support. Uh, and everything you guys do in this community. Without you, we wouldn't be here. So thank you so much. Uh, if you're new to Alpha Vedic, you can find out more about us at alphavedic.com, and that's A-L-F-A-V-E-D-I-C.com. Our new private membership uh, platform will be launching there soon, so please join our mailing list to get notified of that. You can also join us on our Telegram group at t.me forward slash alphavedic. We are have been hovering around the 5,000 member mark there, Bear, uh, in the last few weeks. The bots come in, the bots come out. The bots come in, the bots come out. But we're right there around 5,000 people in our community, in our actual community. So that is just so fantastic to see this growing over the last few years. As I said, the as I've been saying for forever, Andrew, um, the uh, the coronary uh, of the coronation uh, protocol of the Great Reset that started in 2020 has been the greatest gift because it's allowed us all to come together and find each other and um, really go next level with our communities. and And I I'm really excited to hear from Andrew today about everything, not only about the uh, the topic we're covering, but he's been doing his True Medicine University and uh, all his amazing workshops. And I know he's been really focused on growing his community as well, which is really what this is all about now. And, and then the community's merging and finding each other um, at events like Music and Sky and uh, Wise Traditions and all these other great events that are in the real, um, uh, in the now, where we get to actually meet each other, hug each other, and share this beautiful information that's come to light over the last few years that Andrew Kaufman has been so instrumental in. Um, Bear Lando, exciting one today. Any uh, quick points, uh, housekeeping points before uh, we invite Andrew into the discussion? Uh, no, but I, I was about to say the same thing. You know, the real silver lining in the last two years is that we've been brought together with some remarkable people. And Andrew, you are certainly at the top of that list. So we're, we feel very blessed to have you uh, in our lives and just your input. And, and I really mean it when I say this, I look at you as uh, perhaps one of the most courageous voices over the last two years because you took a lot of risk, uh, you know, you spoke the truth. A lot of people did come out, you know, with certain elements of the truth, but you spoke the whole truth from my perspective, uh, even to the point where some of the... Uh, you know, the the folks that weren't on board with the whole agenda, you know, still weren't ready to go the whole way, but you did. So, uh, you know, you, you've just uh, woke a lot of people in the process, and I thank you. And I really appreciate, you know, uh, having been able to work with you and anybody that hasn't seen uh, Andrew's film Terrain, um, you know, definitely watch it. And also on that same uh, Terrain channel, you have your new offerings about your health programs and 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 water uh, research and, and how you apply it to the field of health. So, uh, you know, we'll have all that information and let you talk about that. But thanks so much uh, for being here. And uh, Mike, why don't you do a proper introduction and we'll get this started. Sounds good. Yeah. Andrew Kaufman on AlphaCast for the third time. 
tying Tom Barnett and I think Justin Franson for the most appearances. And I'm sure, Andrew, you'll overtake them soon because of all your intrepid research. So we're so uh, we're so excited to have you back, man. Um, Andrew Kaufman, MD, returns to AlphaCast to share his research and insights concerning that most magical of all elements within our realm, water. On this AlphaCast, we explore the curious and seemingly magical properties of the most abundant element within our ecosystem and personal biology. Master investigator Andrew Kaufman, MD, joins us to share his personal insights based on his ongoing research into the nature of water, including its importance in the field of natural medicine. Long revered by the alchemists of old as the seed of life, this ubiquitous substance continues to confound the scientific community for its knack of ignoring all manner of conventional norm. We'll cover the many aspects of water investigation, including the so-called fourth phase of water, primary water, and structured water. We're especially excited to hear about Andrew's recent breakthrough discoveries to combat the chronic dehydration syndrome now affecting the health of so many, its implications on cell physiology, and his detoxification protocols. For those not already familiar with the renowned Andrew Kaufman, MD, he has been a courageous voice shedding a different light on the alleged pandemic through his tireless efforts, including the production of Terrains Part 1 and 2. Andrew completed psychiatric training at Duke University Medical Center after graduating from the Medical University of South Carolina while earning a BS from MIT in molecular biology. Andrew believes that the innate wisdom of your body can heal itself from almost any insult. And ain't that true, Dr. Lando? Absolutely. So, um, Andrew, we have a lot to talk about here. <laughs> Water is a pretty big uh, subject uh, since it basically comprises everything in existence. We've got, as Mike already said, structured water, primary water, the four phases of water, you know, all, all these different kind of theories and concepts. And I was telling Mike before he came on that the uh, author, who I appreciate very much of the four phases of water, or the fourth phase of water, whatever it's called, uh, it's right here, that, yeah, the fourth phase of water, um, you know, he, uh, rails against the scientific community for being, uh, let's just say less than open for new ideas. Uh, but I also have the observation that I think we suffer more from being less open about old ideas because a lot of the answers have been available through the centuries. And, uh, we have a lot to draw from, from those ancient texts and, and, uh, you know, real scientists that looked at both sides of the equation. So uh, I, I'm going to leave this a little bit open-ended here because I know you don't need any, um, you know, leading questions or anything. So we'll let you take it into any, you know, uh, just the, the principles of water in general. Uh, but what I'd really like to do is if we could keep it in the context of not only your insights and research, but how you apply it uh, within your uh True Medicine University and how you have developed healing and detoxification protocols with that. So uh, we'll let you take it away, whatever you think is the best way to start. And thanks again for being here. We really appreciate it. Well, let me just start by saying, you know, I'm very touched and I think, you know, I feel like we have a very special relationship and, you know, right from the beginning, um, actually, you know, before I went public with anything, when I was still doing my research, you guys were one of the, the best resources out there because you, you know, you're not afraid to talk about real truth. And so, of course, just 
seeing the material that you were covering opened up new avenues of research for me and really helped me uncover things that I did. And then, of course, once I was speaking out publicly, you're one of the first uh, people that I reached out to. And, you know, Mike was on the receiving end and he was just, you know, so receptive and welcoming. It was like we were already on the same team even before we met. So it's been, you know, a fantastic collaboration. And of course, you know, Bear, you were a, a key contributor to the film Terrain, as you guys mentioned. And I know that you have a, a film project out now, which I'm really excited to uh, check out on, on Iconic TV, where they're also featuring Terrain. So, you know, we really have kind of developed this network of people who, you know, aren't afraid to really look at the, the whole truth, right? We're not at the beginning at the superficial level, like we've really are diving deeper and deeper. And, you know, I mean, I don't know when I'll ever stop, but it, it, sometimes it feels like I have like some kind of uh, compulsive illness to find the truth. And, and it's not just that I, you know, I'm just like driven, like it has, I have to know the truth in order for justice to be served, but it's also just fascinating. Like I'm passionate about, you know, the reason I went into medicine in the first place, and this was a curiosity that I experienced as a young child. I just, I was fascinated by biology and how living organisms work and every avenue that I could explore that, like I, I was there and I was asking questions. Like when we went to the family doctor, I was, you know, asking so many questions. He like gave me books from his office to take home when I was, you know, 10 years old. And I, I really want to learn how organisms work, but I want to learn the truth. And once I discovered that, you know, the things I learned at MIT, for example, and in medical school weren't actually true, they weren't really scientific. If you looked at the primary evidence, like they teach you everything, assuming, oh, this is true. This is the way this works. And if you go back like we've done and look at the evidence for that, you find out, oh, that's actually not the way it works. And then, like you said, it's so important to go back because much of this knowledge was contained in wisdom, some in ancient wisdom, right? And not just in one body of knowledge, but in multiple different bodies of knowledge in different cultures, right? And alchemy, which we're going to talk a little bit about today, is one of those bodies of knowledge, and it has been applied to health for quite a long time, right? And where we have like out of, you know, it probably predates ancient Egypt, but you know, at that point, it went different lineages, right? A lot of the knowledge was in the Arabic world and only later re-imported into Europe. And if you look at the mainstream scientists, you know, people that we learn about in school, like Isaac Newton, for example, you see that they were all scholars of alchemical sciences um, before they, you know, had their contribution that they later became famous for. And so you guys mentioned a little bit about the infrastructure I'm trying to build, but like similar to how you're building this infrastructure for, uh, you know, for botany and, and regenerative agriculture um, and that kind of thing. I'm trying to build an educational infrastructure to, you know, teach average folks out there how you can take care of your own health for almost all issues and then i'm also have this like apprentice fellowship training program now for you know for professionals and so far you know i'm just working with mds because that's 
um, you know, my starting point. So I feel most comfortable adapting that knowledge base into natural healing, but I would like to expand. I'd like to even, you know, have some kind of school, uh, but I want to have a looser organization because I don't want it to eventually like become accredited or <laughs> compromise the knowledge. You know, it's difficult to establish something that will maintain that over time. But so, so I have various platforms with different types of educational offerings, you know, for these purposes. And one of them is the terrain workshops, which, you know, basically take the idea of terrain, the film, which is we started off showing how virology and germ theory are actually not based on real evidence. And then we transition to look at this kind of terrain model, which is not really a theory per se, but it's like an, I look at it as like an umbrella term, which encompasses various theories that more accurately apply to biology. And, and of course, healing modalities come out of this philosophy, right? Which essentially is to um, address the context right? The milieu of the body, the environment, the ecosystem, and restore the balance there. And then the disease will resolve itself through these kind of self-healing mechanisms. So I developed a series of workshops where I teach about how you can apply that to various aspects of health and started off with uh, the way of the water workshop, because since I have you know, switched over from mainstream medicine and psychiatry to focus exclusively on natural healing. And I've been studying for about the past five years. In my experience working with clients, um, you know, which had been hundreds at this point, every single client I've ever worked with was dehydrated. <laughs> and, you know, of course, in mainstream medicine, they're somewhat aware of this. They, they usually focus on special circumstances like in um, nursing homes and assisted living facilities where you have patients with Alzheimer's who don't remember to keep up with their thirst, right? But really, this is a pervasive problem that's embedded in our culture that we, and, and more general really than just with water, but we've lost track of how to interpret and monitor the signals that our body has to meet the needs that our body has in order to maintain and restore balance um, and to optimize the functioning and our vitality, right? And this is intrinsically linked with our psychological and spiritual selves, you know, so I don't want to make it just about a physical problem, but so part of that is with the thirst. And, you know, for example, if you look at the modern lifestyle with all the devices and technology we use with how we um, interact with the workplace, you'll see that we have this kind of goal or objective or value of multitasking, right? Of being super productive, not taking breaks, right? Even South Park made fun of this with the video games where they were, you know, the mom brought in a bucket to relieve them so they wouldn't have to take a break from the game, right? And so we learn how to ignore our body functions for the sake of, you know, productivity or to meet, you know, some objective that we have from society or from ourselves, and we ignore the bodily functions. And so I, you know, th that's part of like the origins of this, of this problem. But of course, then we have the consequences and we've also lost touch with 
what illness and and disease of the body is related simply to a lack of enough water you know let alone the problem of is the water pure or not right that's that we're getting into toxicity but just is there simply enough in the body and so this led me of course to some common wisdom right that we all have heard that the water that the body is about two-thirds water right or 60 percent depending on who you say but that is actually misleading because that's by weight and water molecules are very light compared to the other molecules in our body like proteins and uh, complex lipids and and even carbohydrates and so if you go by the number of molecules water makes up 99 or more than 99 out of every 100 molecules in your body so it's really you are water but of course you're not just regular water because you're you're not like a water balloon where you know every step you take you're jiggling and wiggling all over the water in your body is in a very very different form that's that's really a, the key to um biology and, and we're, we'll certainly get into that but just this you know, issue of not having enough water is really the primary cause of so many of the health problems that we have that we just don't make the connection. For example, blood pressure. By far and in a way, the vast majority of people with high blood pressure are simply chronically dehydrated. I mean, think about the effect that this has on your, your oral health, right? We don't even make this connection but you know dental disease gingivitis dental cavities need for root canals right all of that stuff is can be caused primarily by dehydration um, even without a high sugar or processed food diet right and many many other things so much of the chronic pain that people experience um, you know low back pain joint pain etc is due in part or exclusively to dehydration you know, the reason why people have heart attacks and strokes in the wee hours of the morning is because that's the point of the day when you're maximally dehydrated, right? Because your urines keep, your, your kidneys keep making urine while you're sleeping, but you're not taking in any more water. And so that's when those events have, because that's like the precipitating factor of the event that allows blood clots to form or fracture off. So we really, what we have is not thirst, we have dehydration, you know, that's pervasive among the population. And so, you know, I wanted to learn as much as I could to understand why that's really a problem and then to understand what, what's the actual optimal way that people can rehydrate, reestablish that, you know, interaction with their body about thirst without having to, you know, always consciously think of it or you know, set goals for themselves and keep track of it. But you know, how do we get back to that natural interaction? And a lot of really what I do in my consultations is getting the person or the individual back to a state of health um, and insight or mindfulness that they can start relearning how to pay attention to what's going on with the body. You know, when we see people seemingly out of the blue suddenly manifest serious life-threatening disease it's never really out of the blue it's just that they've been ignoring or not perceiving or possibly in active denial about all the ways that their body has been falling apart leading up to that and they didn't 
because they didn't do anything about it, right? And then, boom, you know, there's the cancer or the pneumonia or the heart attack uh, or what have you. So this is an approach, you know, that people, of course, it can, anyone who's already sick, it can make a huge difference. And it's like, I, I don't ever teach people any treatment protocol that doesn't involve uh, rehydration. But this is something, you know, even if you're in, you think you're in great health, you can go through this and realize that you're, uh, you're, you could have been better, <laughs> right? That your energy level will increase, uh, your pain threshold will go down. Um, you know, you, you might have enhanced physical abilities, um, your, you know, your alertness, your mental acuity, all of these things. So um, here on the farm, you know, I can water an area very well and still have plants dry out. And when I see that, it keys me in it. I have to pay attention to some of the conditions in the soil. Having been a, a clinician also, I've come across a lot of people that are very conscious about drinking enough water, but they're still dehydrated. Can you speak a little bit uh, on the reasons on why that might be so? Absolutely. And there, there could be, you know, quite a number of reasons. And I'll tell you that it really what, what helped me understand this particular issue that you're getting at uh, much better bear is when I did an extended water fast back in February. And it wasn't just doing the fast itself, but also like uh, the teaching of Lauren Lockman, who, who runs the Tanglewood Wellness Center. And I, I would encourage people to check out some of his work. So, you know, one of the things here is that even though you're drinking more, it could not be enough more. It depends on, you know, a number of factors and your prior level of hydration. And it, it's also not something like I can't give you a questionnaire or take some measurements and tell you, okay, this is how much water you need to drink a day to stay hydrated. And even if I could, it wouldn't be accurate the next day, right? Because from day to day, we can experience different conditions, right? If you're out, if it's a really hot day in the summer and you're out doing work, in, you know, in the farm, you might need twice as much water that day compared to a day that, you know, it, it was a thunderstorm and you just had a quiet day with your wife indoors. So, you, you know, you need to develop this relationship with your body so that you can do this more intuitively and not, you know, rely on some arbitrary numbers. And that, you know, that's what's involved in my protocol. But there are some other factors too that people don't consider at all. With one of the major ones is the food that they eat. Now, you know, we in our modern culture, almost all the food we eat is cooked for one thing. And anytime you're applying heat to a food, you're taking moisture out of it. Now, some methods of cooking are going to do this much more substantially, like, for example, frying or roasting. And then some foods have ingredients that already are dehydrated, like baked goods, for example, cookies and things like that are extremely dry. And of course, fats, um, fat and water doesn't mix. So those are going to, you know, have zero percent moisture, uh, you know, things like butter and vegetable oils, etc. Now we don't usually eat those straight, so it's so it's not necessarily a problem, but it's kind of the thing you have to pay attention to. So if you're, you know, eating a meal of uh, let's say you know fried chicken and with roasted vegetables, you're that's in a very very dehydrating meal. In order for the food to have enough like a solvent or water to digest inside your gut, it's going to actually pull a bunch of water. 
But what happens when you eat or and or drink is that your body wants to achieve an isotonic fluid inside the lumen of the gut that it has in the body, which is about 300 milliosms. And we're talking about, you know, how much salt and other solutes are dissolved in the water. And so if you put in just solutes, right, like dried food that has no water of its own, then your um, stomach and your small intestine are going to be secreting a bunch of water into the, the digestive canal to help dissolve those nutrients to allow digestion to occur at that isotonic level. And so that's going to, and then a lot of that moisture won't get, end up getting reabsorbed. It'll stay there and go out in your feces. So eating those kind of meals actually dehydrates you. And you have to pay attention to that to compensate for drinking extra water with those meals. Um, and if you underdo that or don't do that, like that's the kind of thing that can prevent you from getting rehydrated. You know, the other thing is, so a lot of people are taking blood pressure medications, um, that have di that are diuretics. And then also a lot of, uh, beverages that people drink contain diuretics that will, even though you think you're drinking a volume of water-based liquid, it's actually causing you to lose that water plus a little bit more. And we're talking about, you know, caffeinated beverages like coffee and tea and soda and then high sugar beverages, which cause the osmotic diuresis like fruit juices and sodas and Gatorade, of course. Yeah. And can you speak a little bit also on maybe the role of salt and, uh, you know, maybe other minerals that affect hydration? Absolutely. And, you know, I think salt is something that is so misunderstood because, you know, in the mainstream medicine, it, you were told that salt is, you know, you should avoid it, right? You should eat bland food without salt. And I do think that they really have found a negative health correlation, but I don't think it's actually from salt, meaning sodium chloride. Um, I think it's from the preservatives because the foods that most people eat, which are high in salt, are high in preservatives. Things like canned soups, for example, or frozen meals, um, you know, other prepared and processed foods, and they have all other kinds of toxic ingredients. But if, but if you have a pure salt, like, you know, Celtic sea salt or pink Himalayan salt. And one of the ways you know you have pure salt is it will clump up if you're in a humid climate. And, you know, you can mix in some rice curdles to prevent that or something, but you don't want salt that has anti-caking agents in it or that has iodide in it or other adulterants because those things would be harmful. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, salt is the most abundant mineral in our body. And of course we need it in our body and we generally get it from food not from water per se so i don't necessarily recommend putting salt in the water but you know i'm a proponent that you should your let your body guide you so if you have more of a taste and you're in touch with your taste preferences for a little more salt then add a little bit more if it's if you're more sensitive to it then probably you need less and you should back it up but with respect to hydration you know salt and water tend to travel together in your body. So when you put more salt in your body, it tends to retain more fluid. Your kidney generally balances this out over time. So it, you know, it will compensate, but like, let's say that you're going to run a marathon in 85 degree heat and you want to, um, you know, stay as hydrated as possible. You might do something like salt loading 
in that situation. I used to do this when I uh, played tennis tournaments in South Carolina. Uh, because it was you would I would have to wear three different shirts, you know, during one match. And it did help, but I would I would drink like a high salt, uh, like a V8 type beverage um, before the match for that purpose. And it did it did help retain the water a little bit more. So so there are ways, you know, for performance situations, but in general you should let your I you know, in my opinion, you should let your body and your preferences uh, guide you with respect to that. I have a I have a yeah. quick question on salt for both you fine gentlemen. What is your favorite? So the quality of salt, what would you recommend? I've heard that the pink Himalayan salt is pink because of rust. I don't know if that's like a and it's not healthy for you. Um, so I, I'm questioned about that. And then two, so what is there's different qualities of salt. What would you recommend? Uh, and also what is is there a a specific nature of salt where it makes most sense to get salt local to you because there's some sort of biofeedback in your locality of where you are with the salt. And this gets into the higher dimensions of the mineral kingdom and all of that. Um, Andy, do you want to take it first? Well, you know, there, there are some interesting things you bring up there about, you know, having something in your local area. I just don't think that's accessible for too many people. You know, it's interesting because where I live is uh, in Syracuse, New York. And Actually, one of the main industries there a uh, hundred years ago was salt. It's called the Salt City. But all the operations are shutting down. You know, maybe I could sneak on there and grab myself <laughs> some. But, but you know, that, that might be challenging. I, you know, and I haven't really done in-depth uh, research on this to know if it really makes a difference. I think there are a lot of other things like eating locally grown foods, I think is probably more important because you don't really find microbes in salt, but you do find them in food, but you find them different populations in different geographic regions, different environmental conditions. So for example, if you're um, you know, recovering from antibiotics, which I don't recommend, um, I would suggest that you make your own sauerkraut and drink the sauerkraut juice to recover from that because then the microbes in the air, in your own environment, right, will be fermenting the cabbage and giving you the proper complement, you know, for where you are right at that time. And I also think that humanure composting is something really powerful that can give feedback to your food uh, that's more tailored to you and your family. Uh, that's kind of a separate topic. I have a book on my reading list uh, waiting to be read on that topic, but I've heard some really, you know, fascinating well, things about it. I think that's what they were doing in Tartaria. That's why they didn't have bathrooms. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and that being said, when you- Well, you still don't want to put just raw sewage on your crops. Well, but, no, uh, no, you got to know what you're doing. <laughs> you got to you got to uh, compost it correctly and have the, you know, yes. the the microbes do their work. But interesting sauerkraut, what do you use to make sauerkraut? Salt. Uh, Bear, which That's I'm true. curious to hear your, because um, alchemy, salt, big part of that, obviously. What, uh, what's your opinion? Because we've been getting some messages like, what kind of salt are you using in your two serum? Why are you using Himalayan salt? Why aren't you using this local salt? Blah, blah, blah. People are really uh, into their salt these days, which is good. People are, are getting fine-tuned into their taste of this very important stuff. I'm just curious, Bear, what your opinion is on the importance and the qualitative aspects of salt. 
Yeah. Well, when you do internet searches, I don't think there's anything that escapes uh, somebody's <laughs> criticism these days, including pink salt. <laughs> I have found uh, no problem with pink salt, but that's a different subject. Uh, in alchemical processes, you use salts uh, in quite a few processes to create a deliquescence where the salt is very uh, good in creating uh, liquids, and you'll use different kinds of salts in order to precipitate liquids, and, and that's a whole different you know story. Uh, one thing I might add, though, is if you look at the 12 cell salts, there are three uh, cell salts in particular, which are sodium-based. Um, you have uh, natrium muriaticum, which is responsible more for just the general distribution of salts. Uh, you have natrium sulfuricum, which prevents water from accumulating too much where you don't need anymore. And uh, natrium phosphoricum is responsible for pH balance of the water. So uh, that's another thing, you know, we're, we're not talking about just common salt, but they are the salts of the three of the, you know, 12 main cell salts that are very important for water and they really need uh, to be present in the bloodstream of all of us, you know, in order to properly distribute and balance water out. So this, you know, um, so Bear, this is an interesting topic. And the fact that you mentioned uh, the um, phosphate, sodium phosphate as buffering, that is what they commonly use in biology laboratories uh, for buffering also, the, you know, PBS, phosphate mm -hmm. buffered solution. So you know, I wonder, did, did they get that from the biological system? And so, but, you know, one of the things that I, a principle that I believe is that essentially there's biological transformation, right? So that if we provide the natural form of these elements like the phosphorus, the sulfur in the appropriate balance and proportions, right, with, with good nutrition, that our body establishes these specific salts in the exact right proportions in the right locations, right, to achieve the optimum physiology. But I, I am curious because there are, you know, preparations where you can actually take these salts and ingest them directly. What do you have any experience or are you aware of any, you know, evidence that that in and of itself would be beneficial rather than just getting them in the form of, of good nutrition? Well, I think in a perfect world, we wouldn't need to take cell salts because they are present in foodstuffs and in our water supply and in a good water supply. Um, but that isn't the case anymore. Just uh, people are so inundated with other things and so have so many impediments in their body that I think cell salt supplementation can be very beneficial. And the thing about cell salt supplementation, it's in a very fine form, you know, it's homeopathically prepared, but it's not homeopathy per se, because it still has the elements in it, although they've been reduced to a minute size, but in that size, they can readily be absorbed, uh, you know, by the cells uh, through the bloodstream. So I, th I think it's a good idea for anybody these days. And clinically, the only, you know, uh, anecdotal proof I have it, that they work is that would be one of the foundational things I would do with people is to assess them individually, customize a cell salt uh, recipe for them and have them do that. And with that and other things, everything else just seemed to work better. Right. 
So that, you know, it's very similar to my approach. I'm just generally using, like, for example, many of those minerals are present in molasses. So mm -hmm. that would be, you know, usually what I would recommend as a supplement for, you know, for, for phosphorus, for example, um, if that was an issue. And, you know, and of course, there are good results. It would be interesting to be able to look at this, you know, a little bit in more detail. But, uh, but you know, it's like with natural healing, it's always the case that there are many different approaches that can be successful, right? And so it's, I like to always see, well, what are the different, you know, variations that people use? And then, okay, maybe I will give a try doing it this way and see how it compares to what I usually do. Um, right? So that's one of the great things about having these uh, forms of communication. Yeah. And I think the best research laboratory is your own body. So uh, with that in mind, would you mind sharing a little bit of your personal experience uh, as far as your extended water fast? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad you bring that up because I have a very similar approach. Like I, if I hear about, you know, uh, some type of, of therapy out there, first I look, you know, is there anecdotal evidence that it really people can recover from serious disease. And then if there is, the second thing I do is I experiment on myself <laughs> with it. And, you know, even though I may not, you know, have a serious disease, I can still make observations about the effect that it has on my body. And then if, if I observe real effects, because many times I've tried things and actually haven't been able to observe any change. Um, and, you know, and then I've heard similar from other people with those particular agents and, you know, there, because there's so many things that are recommended, but, you know, the things that have produced a noticeable beneficial change for me have had dramatically beneficial effects for other people who I've educated about. And I, so I think it's a very powerful way of looking at things and it's completely lost from the allopathic medicine. In fact, you wouldn't want to try any of those pharmaceuticals. There was a, a resident in my program who tried uh, Risperdal, an antipsychotic one time, and he said it was the worst experience he'd had. Like he said, he felt horrible. And, uh, but of course he still prescribed it to other people. Um, but I've never felt horrible, you know, from any of these things that I've tried, uh, that I can think of. Um, I might've smelled a little bit bad, but I felt good. <laughs> so, and you um, had, you had some healing, um, happen, right? Doing this when you first got into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, right from the beginning, um, you know, things improved that I was like the first time I tried a healing protocol, it was based on Kelly Brogan's book. And it was because a, a former colleague of mine was having anxiety problems. And she came to me and I said, Hey, do you want to try something different? Because she'd already been to a bunch of doctors for the anxiety anyway. And so I said, I'm going to do it with you. And we, we did it even though I didn't have anxiety issues, but all these other things like got better, um, you know, for me that I was like, I didn't know they would even be affected. And of course she went into remission from the anxiety. So ever since that, you know, everything that I ever talk about in depth, I've tried. So of course I've done the turpentine protocol several times, for example, you know, I've been taking the Shilajit for a long time. I did coffee enemas. You know, I've worked with various chelating agents. And then 
most recently, as you were asking about, I did a water fast. And this is something that, you know, I, I just knew almost intuitively was a very powerful tool for healing without ever trying it myself. But I did experiment. I did several three-day uh, water fasts, and I noticed that those were beneficial, but not dramatic. I devised a 30-day healing protocol for myself last September, and I started off with a five-day water fast. And that five-day water fast was so beneficial that I didn't really make any additional progress the rest of uh, the remaining 25 days. <laughs> like it was like all the work was done. And so that really propelled me to want to do a longer one. And, and then it was just a matter of when can I do it in my schedule? Because to do a fast properly, you can't have a full workload. You can't be preparing meals for other people or doing chores, you have to have time to rest. And, and really to do any major healing protocol, you having those conditions is gonna make it so much more effective. So I was able to work out an arrangement and thankfully, you know, Leah and my team really picked up the slack and I just worked a couple hours each day. And then I tried to rest as much as I could. And I did it, you know, I, I wanted to go to Costa Rica because they have an amazing facility there and you really are sequestered. So, you know, when you're there, there's really no distractions. I mean, they only give you like 15 minutes a day to check on the computer or the telephone, you know, with your family or whatever. And then, and then that's it. But I couldn't really do that and just, you know, leave my family and everybody for, you know, 100%. So I did it from my house, which you can still do it successfully. And, you know, it was it was a really amazing experience. There were moments, of course, that were challenging. But overall, it really it's not like you're sitting around starving all the time. <laughs> In fact, like after 26 days, when I started eating again, I wasn't really hungry. Like I, I was looking forward to the experience of eating and I enjoyed putting the amazing like strawberries and watermelon in my mouth and chewing it, but I didn't, I could have gone longer without eating, <laughs> you know? So, so most people kind of, you know, are afraid that they're going to be starving, but you, what really, and I think this is a critical thing because the, the biggest lesson I took away from fasting, and I haven't fully conquered these yet for myself, is that we have food addictions, serious food addictions. And that's really why people have such a hard time changing their lifestyle. It's not a matter of willpower. It's a matter of, of you know, understanding and overcoming these addictions. And during the first day of fasting, you know, like, you know, that, I mean, this might happen if you skip breakfast, if you're a breakfast eater, that you start getting, you know, kind of squeegeeing and writhing and, you know, in your belly, right? And we have been taught or commonly accept that that is hunger. But if you think about it, like you get that you ate, you know, less than 12 hours before does your body really need more food so soon? Like, are you about to starve to death? Like, do you have no energy? You can't get out of bed because you haven't eaten in 12 hours, right? That's not the case at all. And so he's told us, he's like, that is not hunger. He said that is essentially a cleaning cycle of your guts. 
that they, you know, it's like the ring, the ring cycle or the, you know, uh, in the washing machine that it's basically, you know, squeezing out the, the crap that's built up from, you know, the crappy food you've been eating. And of course, if you then go and eat more, it interrupts that process because your body can't, you know, you can't clean your kitchen and cook a meal at the same time. If you're in the middle of cleaning, you have to stop cleaning to switch to cooking. And that's what your body does. It stops cleaning and switches to digestion. And that provides relief from the kind of feeling that we've grown to look at as uncomfortable. And that gives us a, a false sense that we actually were hungry and we satisfied our hunger and our body is showing appreciation. You know, this is what I was saying about being out of touch with your body's signals before, you know, a great example of it. And so once I accepted that my body really didn't need more food so soon and that this could very well be a cleaning cycle, I changed my view on it. And I said, wow, I'm, I'm thankful for this fasting experience that I'm going to let my body actually complete the cleaning cycle. And then what happened is it didn't feel uncomfortable anymore. And before I knew it, it had passed. And it really only did it a few times the first like 48 hours of the fast. And then I didn't have that experience again. Now, I did have moments where I had dreams about, you know, McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I had one moment where I actually felt drunk like that there was some alcohol reservoir mm -hmm. somewhere deep in my bones and it came into my blood suddenly. And, and interestingly, a lot of other people have, like um, Lauren was telling me about one uh, prior client who in their youth had a serious cocaine addiction, then, you know, got sober and was sober for a long time and then did this fast, you know, like 20 years later. And as several times during the fast actually felt intoxicated on cocaine like that it was basically somewhere stuck in the body and making its way out and it turns out that there's this theory and you know my experience uh was consistent with this that your body retains stool like there, there's some small portion of the stool that gets stuck somehow in the recesses in the gut. Like maybe, you know, like Lauren's theory is in the jejunum that there are all these folds and kinks in the, this, the, the last part of the small intestine. And that in those bends that there'll be like, you know, a band of this really hard fecal material, right. That gets stuck in there. And what happens is that it, if, when you, and this only, your body only clears this stuff out when you do a, a longer fast, like 21 days seems to be the magic number. And then you start having, you know, usually it occurs after refeeding because your, your bowels for the most part shut down during the fast after the first few days. And I mean, I had occasional like diarrhea like that. I think it was my liver cleaning itself out, but there was no solid stool until this, hard stuff came and i had one episode of this at the one of the last days of the fast and then a few days into the refeeding is when it really started coming out and basically this like hard as a rock stuff that you know it takes a while 
you have to sit on the pot for a while. It's not easy to get out. And sometimes, you know, also it might smell quite horrific, like not like a usual stool. And so, you know, it seems really that that we, our bodies just hold on to this stuff. And then occasionally it leaches into our blood, like across the intestines and can precipitate illness and gets stored in other places in the body and is a real source of, of disease. And it seems that the fasting process, which leads to moving this out, results in substantial therapeutic benefit in terms of um, you know, improvement of serious disease that's already manifest, like, you know, things like cancer, um, but also as a way to like improve vitality and, you know, prevent that kind of serious disease from manifesting in the future. Although that's of course, harder to prove. Was there uh, was there any gold in those nuggets? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the true alchemy going on there. Wow. A uh, real quick question. Um, when you're doing the water fasting, um, was that distilled water or was what kind of water was that? Well, now, you know, at their facility, they actually have primary water from a spring on their property. So Amazing. they they have the best, uh, you know, kind of water there. But I used the same as my normal drinking water, which is uh, reverse osmosis water that is uh, stirred with the analemma water wand. Hmm. So, um, yeah, what people don't really understand is that fasting is actually nutritive and everything you're describing, of course, you're wringing out the sponge, cleaning out all the nooks and crannies. And then when you do eat, you can, you know, you have much more absorptive surface. Uh, since you brought up primary water, do you have any thoughts on that as far as why it might be a good idea or what it is in the first place? Well, you know, I have been looking into this for a couple of months. Um, I read uh, at least one interesting book about it, um, which really kind of talks about the history of how it came into the modern knowledge and then how it was rejected by the mainstream. But, you know, I, I'm blanking on the author of this book. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it. But in the beginning, there is a, um, a foreword from Aldous Huxley. And he was aware of primary water, <laughs> quite interesting. And, you know, being a prominent figure at the time, talking about it like that, but it still didn't, you know, get into the mainstream. So my understanding is that the water cycle, which shows us that there's a, you know, finite amount of water um, on the earth that essentially keeps uh, evaporating and recondensing and uh, permeating through the soil uh, is all we're going to ever have is totally wrong. And that there's essentially, uh, you know, an ocean larger than all the oceans on the surface, deep under the Earth's surface, that contains this newly synthesized water, which comes together from hydrogen and oxygen gas under intense heat and pressure, and, you know, forms steam initially, and then that drives its way up through uh, cracks or fissures in the, the rock, um, you know, mostly into uh, forming springs, but also like sometimes into aquifers and other, uh, or into lakes, etc. can be mixed with surface water. Um, I think, you know, other things like geysers and such. But, you know, I thought it was quite interesting that one of the ways that modern geologists found out about this was from mining operations where they would, you know, have a mining excavation and they would they would reach a certain level or they would hit a certain spot and suddenly they'd be flooded with water <laughs> and you know the water kept flowing 
forever. They had to like basically pump it out faster than accumulated. But, you know, even many of these sites that were closed down, they went back years later and they were still water coming out, you know, just like it with a true spring where, you know, the flow is incredible in, in the, you know, gallons per minute. And then it just never ceases. I think there are some springs that, you know, have been known about since antiquity and written in ancient writings and they're still active today in this process. Now you had mentioned uh, in the intro, I think before we even started recording that primary water is not really primary. So I'm like, I'm dying to hear, <laughs> I learned something new here, but hopefully at least most of what I said is, uh, is accurate according to your research as well. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, if you go, uh, what is it, the golden chain of Homer, which is, a, you know, alchemic, alchemical text from the 17, early 1700s, um, it really uh, takes you through the journey of matter precipitating through the ethers. And of course, you, you start with the most abundant uh, subject with the or element with the associated with the uh, the fire element, which is hydrogen, then it steps down to the air, which is nitrogen, and then there's a fermentation that, you know, happens between those two when it hits oxygen, which is the water level, the ether, and you get your ammonia compounds and things from that. And then that precipitates into the final element of ether, which is carbon. Now, Walter Russell even talks about carbon being at the core uh, rather than molten iron, not a core like a spinning globe kind of core, but you know, at a certain level of the surface, below the surface, and then that biotically creates water. Now, the old alchemists understanding how things precipitate through a water medium to its final fixed state into the carbon element, uh, they would say that all minerals, uh, like for instance, a chunk of granite rock is frozen water. They looked at everything as frozen water. So when you have um, primary water, it's actually that second stage of the water being eliminated from the rock, from the mineral and so forth. Now, when water freezes and goes through those predictable cycles of, uh, you know, how uh, water, you know, how we experience it uh, on the surface here, when it gets into that frozen state of ice, it has, I think, kind of a lattice work uh, crystallization. Yeah, whereas it's a honeycomb is lattice. Like yeah, so uh, rock is more, I think, a cuboidal structure, if I'm correct. and uh, But still, it's frozen uh, relative to the alchemical ethers, layers. It's frozen water into a form. And when you look at the fact that maybe ice will, uh, you know, melt very quickly, the granite rock is also going to melt over time and release that water in it. It's just going to maybe take tens of thousands of years relative mm -hmm. to a cube of ice. There, there is a, so living here, um, we are surrounded by spring fed. Well, we we're on a spring fed river. The Smith river is known as the cleanest riverway in North America, or at least in the United States. And so I, every day dip in this, uh, this uh, Creek right up the street from me, uh, right up the, the trail for me called Stony Creek. And I've been real, I, when I go in there, I see there's so, sort of this qualitative um, uh, feeling of the water where it, it almost, it feels like softer and more structured. And you look at it, it's almost more plasma like, and I feel like it's beginning more and more like that recently. And with the talks I've had with Russell Anderson, which we'll have on in, in September, and I've shared Andy, uh, his, uh, he recently had an interview uh, that I shared with you, and he's been researching primary water forever. What they're saying is right now, this is the primary water, which is consciousness is connected to this sort of uh, consciousness 
consciousness of us, right? Through the ethers and that it's actually now bubbling up more and more and the qualitative aspects of it are changing in relationship to our consciousness. And there's a book that I ordered and I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but it's Rainy Marie Hiley. I don't know if you've heard of this book, Andy. Uh, it's called no. The Water Code, Unlocking the Truth Within. And it's highly resonant with the geometry of consciousness. She says, water discloses that it is coded to release Earth's Akashic records at this exact moment in human evolution, a moment when the collective vibratory frequency has opened the floodgates of truth. The water code guides readers through the process of establishing communication with water. And, and this is going to I can take us into the fourth base of water and structured water and communication, all that. Uh, the water code guides readers through the process of establishing communication with water. Instruction is offered to aid one on the journey within, facilitating an increase in personal frequency by making and drinking harmonized water, integrating color, and balancing and energizing the 13 chakras. The water code is more than just a book. It is an act of compassion on behalf of water, offering humanity the insights and tools necessary to facilitate Earth's transformational jump into a new era of harmony, freedom, and truth. And I think this is a, a really powerful idea to, that the water is here. It's coming up. The primary waters are coming up now as we transition in through this great awakening. And we, we start to understand really what the true nature of water is connected to the ether or the ethernet that connects us all. And what I analogy I say is the water is like the internet service provider for the ethernet, if that makes sense, because it's the communication aspect between us all. So I'm curious what research you've done, uh, Andy, and I know Tom Cowan, who uh, you work with a lot, has done a lot of research on this in relationship to the informational side of water and how that directly, uh, ref re you know, um, <clears throat> reflects our health and, and how vibrant and vital we are with the qualitative aspects of the water within us. Absolutely. Well, you know, this is a really, really fascinating kind of area, and it, it's really where in the frontier stages uh, of this knowledge, right? And so what we do know for sure, right, is that, well, water definitely can um, take information. It can also take energy, store energy. It can um, transduce energy. In other words, convert it from one form to the other. It can take in information and put out information. It appears to have memory, but it definitely has some kind of language or some echoing ability. And so I, I wanna bring up Veda Austin's more recent work because she sort of followed up um, Emoto's work like flash freezing of various water samples with different inputs of intention or thought or images. But she initially did it really as a more artistic endeavor and, and created some really beautiful and insightful um, images. But she then, kind of discovered that water has like a language, like a pictographic language, and that if you convey a similar meaning, but using different words, that the water will always give back the same image. And that there seem to be like a set of core characters almost that represent, you know, words or concepts. And she's attempting to discover and catalog like the entire vocabulary or as much of the water vocabulary. And another interesting thing about this, Mike, is that when other people do the same experiments, 
using similar or different words, or sometimes like if they live in a different uh, a country with a different language, they use the word in that language. And Veda uses, you know, the English word, either if she's in New Zealand or in California, and they get the same result. So it's like there's, you know, this is like the virus challenge. We're trying to get them to do a validation studies, right? She's already, she's not even a scientist and she's just instinctively doing validation studies <laughs> to, you know, see how real this phenomenon is. So certainly this hints at the possibilities of, you know, what could, you know, how could water or this abilities of water play out in biological systems and, and not just with the day-to-day -day like biological operations, but perhaps with spirituality and other higher order uh, properties and behaviors, um, you know, that we can look at. But in terms of the biological, you know, we have the this problem in biology and it's really with the theory of genetics that you know we're we've been told that all of the information to run all of the chemistry of the body is contained in the the d the genes in the dna but when we look at this more carefully we see that there aren't enough genes <laughs> in fact uh, there's only really 20 percent of what we need there's like about 20 to 22,000 genes and 100,000 proteins. And usually a protein might require more than one gene. So it's really more than 80% off. So where does all the information come from? You know, or how does it get to our body? Where does it come from? And how does it inform our body to do these things? Because if you think about the complexity of what's going on, you know, 10 trillion cells, each cell um, undergoing thousands of different chemical reactions simultaneously, right? That, and all of this has to be coordinated to the level that we can function on the macro scale, you know, that we can run a mile, that we can drive a car, that we can, you know, have conversations like this. Um, there requires a really high degree of order and, and, um, and coordination it's far beyond the raw, like if we looked at our brain as a computer processor, right? It's far beyond the processing capacity of the brain to manage all of those. Like you'd need a, a brain, you know, the size of Tennessee or something <laughs> to do that. It would be very inefficient, obviously. So there has to be another explanation that the information has to come from somewhere and it has to get um, input it into the body to coordinate all of these operations somehow. And if you look at a distributed network, that would be the easiest and most efficient way that this could occur. So in other words, like each little part of your body could separately get the information and instructions um, rather than it coming to a central location and then be distributed everywhere. Um, but of course, these models are both possible. So what, what I think is you know, and a really interesting thing to look at is, so the information could be contained in the form of electromagnetic waves, whatever frequency band or type of waves, we don't know, right? But we could start just looking at the Schumann residence because we know that that occurs in a natural system and we can, you know, go from there. Maybe it's multiple frequencies and then it is received somehow by the water. Now there may be some special interaction between water and DNA, like like Tom Cowan uh, has a, a hypothesis about that. That actually 
that when water uh, surrounds the, a strand of DNA that, that the water actually forms a helix and perhaps the helix could act like an antenna to receive this information. You know, antennas that humans um, design are generally straight, but we know that a coil has certain pro electromagnetic properties, right? Uh, any um, current that goes through a coil, for example, generates a toroidal magnetic field. And we know that we have toroidal fields in the body, right? Around the heart, around the whole body, etc. So, you know, there's, um, I think this is a kind of very preliminary area. I mean, I'm interested in if the author that you described feels that they've really decoded all this signals in water, that would be fascinating to look at. I just want to, you know, make sure that it, that it, that all that information has been validated because we're going to find some incredible information out about how this thing works. You know, someday for sure we'll, you know, we'll have much better understanding that we have now. And I think it's going to blow all of us away. Um, but it's a very young field and it's important to be a little bit cautious and make sure that, you know, um, cause a lot of people are, you know, for example, in this space have products to sell. Um, you know, to make your water better and improve your health. And that, that's, of course, you know, it's a, it's a um, conflict of interest against just understanding, you know, the truth about how water works. But, but there is so much potential. And, you know, I want to definitely get into a little bit more granularity, but let me let you guide where, where your interests are, uh, you know, bear with respect to this topic. Well, one comment is that the deeper you get into this, it's hard to figure anything out without acknowledging that there must be some kind of creative intelligence in the universe. Absolutely. And, uh, and then when you go back to the ancient texts again, which is where I always have to go because they make more sense. And I've been able to prove a lot of those uh, concepts out in my own experience. Uh, you have the four elements, which, you know, loosely, uh, correlate with the four levels of ether again. Now they create three attributes that make up the animal kingdom, the mineral kingdom and the plant kingdom. And it's the soul for the body and, and the so-called mercury that uh, relates to the soul, the body and the spirit, the spirit being the mercury. Now, when you look at water, when you combine water with air, that's what they're the two volatile uh, mediums of the fixed elements, you know, water and earth. And, uh, and one of the volatile elements, uh, the air, you know, with the fire elements. So when you put yes. those two together, then that creates the mercury. Now, the mercury is the mediator between heaven and earth, so to speak, you know, uh, between those original progenitor electrical vectors coming from consciousness. And then also uh, with the earth medium, which is where things really, you know, meet the ground and precipitate. And at the same time, water is part of the fixed uh, earth element with the earth element that precipitates matter. So water has this interesting role and it, it's a mediator between the two and also part of the fix. So just looking at it from that schematic, you see how if you put it in more Western technology or uh, uh, Western thinking, and we're thinking of compressing data waves in toroidal fields rather than the ether, then we're taking that information, compressed data, which becomes, you know, water is a transmitting utility of that. And so it all starts to make at least a general sense as far as how that is possible 
where water has such a vital role, carries the information and at the same time as the medium that fixes it into precipitation. So uh, that's what I would add to that. But maybe if we can um, segue with that into what you're starting to get into is how do we put all this into some kind of practical application? Well, absolutely. And of course, you know, that is the key. And, you know, there's, you, you can just look at the overall goal of the practical application is to make sure that everything that should be in your body gets in and everything that shouldn't be in your body gets out. And then the to get to that point from where you are now is essentially an alchemical transformational process. And so, you know, we were gonna, we're focusing kind of on water today primarily, uh, but it is a little bit artificial to separate that out of the equation, right? And really, you know, when I work with individuals, it's, it's largely about like, let, let's transform your entire being, right? Your body, mind, and spirit into one of a, you know, I don't want to say a higher level, but of a, you know, superior vibration, right? One that is enhanced and more developed and advanced than your current, right? And that could mean that you're able to, you know, um, do more sports with your grandkids. It could be that you're able to improve the conflict conflicts in your relationships because now you have, you know, um, uh, more composure and perspective, right? And it and it can mean that you'll that you will have a closer connection with the creator as a result of this kind of a transformational process. So, but for today's purpose, because you know, I I am I'm launching a course to teach you how to do this called the alchemical detox course that's going to come up, um, I believe on September 10th is the first uh, webinar um, of that course, we're going to launch it in the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to really, you know, my aim is to teach both the average man or woman, but also health professionals, how you can not only like understand what are the different aspects of of how you would undergo such a transformative process, but that you would at the end be able to customize a personalized process for yourself, right? And for your specific condition, your sensibilities, um, you know, your strengths and weaknesses. And th that's the kind of power where, you know, you'll never need help from someone after that. You'll be able to sort of um, access this really, really powerful um, process. But if we just talk about, you know, the water, there are definitely a number of challenges. So one is, you know, how much do you start with? How do you know how to adjust that from day to day? How do you actually go about sipping the water itself? Right? There are some people who just want to chug all, like, you know, you say, oh, drink a gallon of water a day. They like chug a gallon of water in the first hour and they're like, oh, I'm done. <laughs> That's not going to be effective. Right. Well, and there's so, this idea that water is a solvent, right? So, yes. I know, like Tom Barnett says a lot that the best structured waters go eat an apple because you're getting you're getting the actual structure right out of the fruit and you're not dilute you know 
flushing everything through your system. So I'm just curious also to see your opinion on what that idea is in terms of the solvent and how you should take that in. So, yeah, well, no. So part of, so what, you know, I have like a 30 day protocol that I've developed, um, you know, how, and you can do this by the way, without changing your lifestyle around, like you can still work your regular job and care for your family while you're getting rehydrated. And that's, it's sort of a, an entry point right into really undergoing a health transformation, but it'll have major benefits just on its own. And so part of that is that you have to, you know, during the protocol, my, my instruction is that at least 50% of each meal should be consist of raw food. And I mean, really raw, like I'm talking really about salads and fruit. Um, those are the main thing. But I also talk about how you can, you know, change how you how you cook cooked foods to make more soups, more stews, and and use braising for meat because those have much higher moisture content. Like for example, your with your cooked vegetables, you, you know you could um, bake or roast them, or you could make a little vegetable soup, which is really easy to whip up. It's a great way you can you know get some bone broth in you, get some collagen in you and then you'll be much more well hydrated. So for this protocol, at least half of each meal is supposed to be raw food. And then I also have information about how you can, if you, in the future, once you're hydrated, if you're going to eat a really dry meal, sort of some guidance of how to drink. Now, if you eat 100% raw meal, you actually don't want to drink fluids with that meal because you can then end up diluting the nutrients and have you know poor absorption um, of the nutrients so so i would say like essentially maybe about 15 minutes before the meal stop drinking water and then wait for about an hour or so you know then eat and then about 45 minutes after the meal you can uh you know start drinking water again and that should be pretty good so and i've you know i've, I've integrated this into my lifestyle already um you know for example for dinner last night we had you know, a, a simple soup with that just had meat and uh, bell peppers in it um, and bone broth and um, and then just fresh fruit and a and a salad. Uh, and that was, you know, that's the whole typical meal. And my kids love it, by the way, uh, because they, you know, they don't like eating vegetables and we hardly eat any vegetables anymore. <laughs> just a lot of fruit and <laughs> salad. So, you know, salad leaves and and uh, fruit vegetables, but not 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 hardly any real vegetables. And that that makes a huge difference in and of itself um, with the protocol. And then the other aspect is, you know, how quickly can you drink the water? And, you know, two, there's two goals when you drink water outside of a meal. Like one is you don't want to initiate digestion. And that's also, by the way, critical for water fasting. And then the second thing is you don't want to have your kidneys um, get rid of the water that you just put in. And so I, I did some serious research um, to, to figure out how to avoid these things. And what I determined that if you drink eight ounces of water at a time, even if you chug it, it will not initiate digestion and it will not cause any increased kidney diuresis. So in other words, all of that water will get into your body and stay in your body uh, without starting digestion. 
And you know, this is really good news because I originally had thought that you really need to gradually sip the water very, very slowly. Um, and that's very challenging. Like when I did that during my fast, there were some days that I actually stayed up late to finish the water requirement. <laughs> but when I tried this method, and by the way, I also tried it um, experimentally to make sure that I was, didn't have any increased urination because, you know, many times when people start to drink more water, the first thing that happens is they pee more, right? Now, part of that could be just because they, their body had to hold on to every ounce of water before. Now it doesn't because you're supposed to basically, you know, flush out the water. That's how your body gets rid of waste products. And you just, you need to replenish that with more water. But the other thing is that if your, your kidneys have actually been building up toxins because they haven't been able to really flush themselves out because there's not enough water in the body. And once you start to rehydrate, you're gonna have a temporary period where there's gonna be increased urination and you gotta realize that that's a really good thing. That's your kidneys flushing themselves out and it's gonna stabilize. It's not, you're not gonna be tethered to the bathroom indefinitely, <laughs> but you might experience that for, for a brief time. You know, so, but once I learned that you could drink eight ounces in a 30 minute period, then what I did was I set the timer for every 30 minutes and I just basically chugged in one or two gulps, eight ounces. And this was super easy to achieve because it didn't interfere with any activity, right? Like, like for example, before just constantly sipping, like let's say I had to go and fold a load of laundry. I'd have to like, you know, bring the water glass along with whatever else I was carrying, right? Always. And then stop folding to sip and fold and sip. And it was really a pain. Whereas if I could chug eight ounces, go fold the laundry, then chug another eight ounces, like that's much more efficient for me. And I found that it was, I finished my water requirement way, way earlier in the day. And, you know, then I could just sip leisurely if, if I felt thirsty, um, you know, at that point. So it's really, really practical doing this way. But there's still a few things you need to do, like you need to keep track of it. So I created a special diary, where you, but you can, of course, make something like that on your own. And, you know, you need to have like the right kind of storage for your water. Like you don't want to be putting it in plastic bottles or cups. Right, so you have to have glass or stainless steel or copper vessels. Um, you know, you have to make sure that you have enough clean water with you. So if you're going to work, you have to bring your water. So you have to first make sure you have enough vessels, fill them up with the clean, pure water, high quality, bring that with you, and then just drink that and keep up with it, you know, during the day uh, like that. So there's lots of kind of helpful tips and tricks, um, you know, to make it very, very practical. And then at the end of the day, there's like a checklist where you say, okay, you know, did I drink what I was my goal for the day? Did I have 50% raw food at, at my meals? And then, you know, uh, when I finished, was I still thirsty? Did I drink any more? Maybe I should, if that's the case, maybe I should drink a little more tomorrow. Did I feel, you know, lightheaded at any point? during the day? Was I nauseated? Did I have any vomiting or diarrhea? Like these kind of practical things that will inform about the water balance. And then you make an adjustment. Either you go up, you know, by um, 16 ounces the next day, which is about one liter, 
or you keep it the same, right? And, and you basically keep on this tact for 30 days and you know, you'll, so you'll get through that period of excessive urination and you'll, by the end, you'll probably be on a fairly steady amount the last, you know, 10 days or so. And that'll probably be, you know, close to what your body might need as maintenance, but you're, you know, you'll be at the end of that period, really, really well hydrated. So it's like a reset, a new starting point. And, you know, it's really so user-friendly that if you fall off track, you can easily just go back and repeat that again and get back on track, you know, pretty, pretty easily. Like it, it really only takes, you know, about five minutes a day to like go through that and like just figure out your amount for tomorrow. The rest is just what you do normally. Like you're going to drink water, you'll fill your water glass, you know, throughout the day. Um, you'll just do it in a slightly different way now. So Mike and I uh, have a, a good advantage in that we just walk over and get water to squirting out of the mountain. And, uh, but what about all the people, the majority of people that live in urban environments, what would you recommend as the best source? Well, of if water you, uh, if you give your address, we can send them to your house with some <laughs> glass jugs. Uh, you know, you, you're in a very lucky situation, mm -hmm. you know, having that access. And I'm I'm about to mm -hmm. to move locally, and I've already actually did a preliminary search for some springs near mm -hmm. my new house, and I'm I'm gonna take a look at them, and if they look promising, I might you know get some testing done to see if I might draw on that as my drinking water source. So, you know depending on where you live, there's a reasonable chance there might be a source of good primary spring water within, you know, distance of your house or even maybe on your property for that matter, that you could go there and fill up, um, you know, bottles like um, Tom Cowan uh, does this at a, a place near his house as well. Um, so, you know, that would be definitely a lovely option if you were able to do it. Now, as far as like buying water, that, you know, if you're going to buy any water that's going to be really pure enough to drink, you're going to spend a lot of money, most likely. <laughs> so because, you know, the grocery stores or whatever, they usually they only sell water in plastic bottles, except for some, you know, spring water. But you'd have to investigate the particular, you know, source and uh, to determine if that was really good quality water or not because many of these things are really just marketing gimmicks and it's not really spring water, even if it says it on the label. So, you know, then you're kind of left with, you know, what water do you have access? Most people have, you know, tap water either from a municipal system uh, like city water or they have water from a well. Now, just because water is from a well doesn't mean it's good quality water. Wells can be contaminated with agricultural, industrial, uh, can, you know, runoff and pollution, um, including heavy metals and they can have parasites, all kinds of nasty things. So you want to make sure that your source is, you know, clean if you do have well water. And it's, by the way, it's possible well water could contain primary water. Um, you know, you just don't know in, until you know, but if it smells, you know, sulfury or it tastes really salty, chances are that you're going to have to um, purify it by some means. So for purification, I recommend primarily two methods, which is um, one is distillation. The other is reverse osmosis. Now, I want to say that 
you know, having water that's undergone that process is not the best quality in terms of the energy, the liveliness, the biological compatibility of those waters. They're somewhat, you know, dead water, especially distilled. But, but the reason why I recommend this is because those are the reliable methods to get out all of the poisons that are in the water. And there are other methods that might be gentler on the water, but they don't get out all the poisons. And it's much better to, to have dead pure water than poison water, in my opinion. And I've seen a lot of illness from contaminated water. But you can take that kind of deadish water and you can revitalize it by a number of different processes. And that's what I, you know, do now with my RO water um, using the water wand. And I also, by the way, give it an intention of gratitude, usually sometimes hopefulness, sometimes love, um, sometimes more specific because I even do this, you know, with the water that I give to my plants. Um, so I, you know, express gratitude for providing the plants, the hydration they need and things like that. And I think that that, you know, actually scientifically has been shown to make a difference aside from it just feels good to do that. You know, like the more gratitude we express, the more gratitude we experience. And then that changes you from a pessimistic outlook to an optimistic outlook. Because if you're grateful for all these things, then there must, everything must be good. Otherwise you wouldn't be grateful. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's a really positive thing, but there are many other things you can do to revitalize the water. Like you can pour it through a vortex funnel. You can um, agitate it, um, you know, to help oxygenate it and aerate it by, you know, uh, stirring it into a vortex or many other ways you can do that. Um, there are other devices that use magnets and crystals and, you know, various things. And I mean, if you listen to Tom Cowan, he has like a 12 step process. He must spend half the day preparing his water. <laughs> Right. So you can really get intense about this. But every time that you, you know, no matter what particular process or material you use, just putting your energy into it to improve it is going to have the effect of improving it. <laughs> right. Because mm. water is able to get this indirect communication from us. And it, you know, it seems to really want to work with us in a mutually beneficial way, or even, you know, provide a service, you know, to organisms in some way. So, you know, I think that it really, you don't, other than just making sure the water, the starting water is pure enough, you, there's many, many things you can do that are, that are to your sensibilities, you know, to really make that water uh, vibrant and, and energized. Yeah. And, um, you know, the work of Ada and Emoto, they've, they've kind of proven that out as far as your intentions and thoughts, you know, have a, a big, uh, a big say about the quality of water, which also proves the, the, you know, seemingly magical properties of water, you know, in biogeometry, we have, uh, little things like this that we put water on that just have geometric shapes that actually, uh, convey the golden mean energy the 1.6 you know that uh yes is very the golden beneficial. ratio yeah so um you know just setting your water on that for a half an hour it really changes it and you can actually test the change uh you know one thing i i just wanted to mention i mentioned it to you on our private uh call the other day just kind of uh, talked about it briefly and that water you know we're talking about rainwater which is technically distilled but even when water has been distilled 
there are elements in it that never leave. And, uh, you know, that's been referred to as actually water stem cells, you know, in some circles. And there are laboratory processes that I know firsthand that actually do this. And it's an elaborate process that, uh, you know, we don't want to go through. But the end result, you, uh, you put the water, nothing added to it through a fermentation process. And in that fermentation process, you derive what's called a GER. It actually develops. And this is distilled water. And it's already been through uh, many distillations, not just one. And then that GERD looks like a little hairy ball in there. And then there's a way of distilling that out, isolating it. And then you do processes with the other water that becomes um, concentrations of the, of the different elements in that water. And they're all distinctly different. Now you can water that GER and put that through, you know, with the, like the fire element, the the earth element, the air element, the, you know, and so forth. And then that uh, water will then grow actually the three kingdoms of nature. You'll get primitive plant sources. You'll get uh, mineral substances. Um, you know, it's remarkable just out of distilled water. So there's something in water. There's some kind of information there that never leaves it, no matter what you do to it. And the old alchemist knew about that and their processes brought that back to life to create the three kingdoms. So uh, very interesting work. And uh, one of the things that I'm involved with now is uh, we're trying to procure uh, a new well, type Bear, of mic before, for before you change yeah. topics, like I wanna like ask a little, you know, so first of all, that yeah. it's really, really fascinating and, and I would, strongly encourage you to try to capture that process on video to show what the girl yeah. looks like and and you know explain in a little more um you know detail what what exactly you're doing there but when you're talking it reminds me of pleomorphism right of the mm -hmm. you know the the somatids or protids whatever you want to call them right that they can actually spontaneously generate into different life forms in certain conditions and i wonder is there like a water somatid or maybe it's the same thing that is actually generates inorganic and organic you know they can generate all three kingdoms uh, so, you know, what are your, your thoughts or where do you, you know, I mean, cause you describe like a primordial, uh, you know, form of water, right. That all these things sprout from, and it, that's kind of the same story as pleomorphism. Yeah. I believe they're pure informational fields that lack uh, corporeal substance. On the other hand, somehow they get brought back to life. Now this is uh, ancient knowledge. I have, uh, peers that have done that i've done certain elements of it it's a lengthy process you could take an entire year or longer to do this uh i was talking to adam biggleson uh just the other day and he gave me a source for a new microscope that both of us want very much and so what i plan on uh, using in this experiment when i get to the end product is getting a lot of this on video uh, you know, uh, some people I know that have taken the process all the way to the end uh, in the animal kingdom, they even find these like little uh, pin size things that squirm around in the water. And, and you know, there's been a lot of speculation. Well, what the heck are those? Sea monkeys. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. So um, there's a lot going on there. Let's just say that. And I don't know of anybody 
that's taken that process and then gone the next level and, you know, gotten it on tape and, and really uh, looked at it under high magnification. So that's, that's sort of uh, my project for the next few years here. Wow. It sounds amazing. Can't mm -hmm. wait to hear more about it. Yeah. This is so great guys. Cause it, we, I can, I think people that are in the chat and they're listening to this can really get a sense that we are uh, uh, in like the new terrain of new science that's happening right now. Exciting times that something as simple as water is not simple at all. And it's really has uh, unlocking the, the secrets of water uh, is a microcosm for, um, you know, the new science unlocking the secrets of consciousness. Uh, and it's uh, really exciting to see all this unfolding in front of us. This has been an absolutely amazing talk. Uh, the chat's been in fuego. For those listening, by the way, if you ever want to join us in chat, um, YouTube still is probably the main one, but we're also on Unite.com. Uh, live, uh, which is Sayer G's new platform uh, that uh, used to be B Sovereign. And so check that out. Uh, Andy, um, what are the best ways for people? Well, before we get to the links, is there any final things that you'd like to cover today the, uh, in relationship to your protocols or your research? Well, you know, of course, we we've only covered the tip of the iceberg here. And, you know, uh, Bear and and uh, and I and, and Mike, you know, we're all kind of on a mission, right, to uh, explore all these new and old things. And of course, to continue to um, criticize and debunk the, you know, false uh, modern materialist uh, scientific theories. And so it's always a treat and, you know, like, so if people want to suggest future areas of research, like, please do. But I'll tell you that, you know, water, pleomorphism and, um, you know, sort of more basic, you know, what really is matter and substance and right. So that involves looking at the ether and the alchemical elements is, you know, where I'm really trying to gain a lot of understanding and try to, you know, of course, I always have the um, bias to use that in practical ways, right? So I've taken all of this information about water and let's made it practical. How can it make a difference, you know, in your life right away without, you know, getting caught up in the mysteries and the passions if you're too busy or uninterested in that. But, you know, for for you folks out there, there's so much to look at. And, you know, even within water, right? And we didn't even get to talk about structured and coherent water at all, but I, I know quite a bit about that. But I'm now looking into the work of Victor Schauberger and Grander, um, you know, which has a lot to do with the water in motion um, and those kind of properties. And so it's, you know, there's so much uh, really to to take in in this topic. It's it's amazing. Yeah, it's it crazy. So, I mean, we live on the plane of inertia, right? So when you're in, like for us, we are on a riverway. So I trip out on this sometimes. So unlike a lake, right? When you're on a river, when you're in the river, which I swim in every day, I do laps every day, um, and uh, especially in the summer, you it's like the water's always moving. Like the water is, it's this huge waterway that's never, never not moving, right? So it's yep. very interesting when you're in these pools, especially like I go in these pools in this creek I was mentioning, and there's like a vortex moving around. And I go in there and I meditate. And there is some sort of like structured, coherent dialogue going on there where I feel the, you know, I don't know, I feel lifted from it when I get out. And I'm not even talking cold immersion. I'm talking right now where it's quite comfortable in the 
low 70s. So there is something there to, to uh, in terms of the coherency of that moving water as a sort of information pathway. So I would love to have Bear, I think this will be great as uh, we continue our research to have Andy back on to go deeper into the structure, coherency of it, the informational side more and all that, because I think that's another two hour talk at least. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, and also the World Water Festival's coming up. I don't know, I, I know you mentioned you've been talking to uh, Dr. Jerry Pollack, is that correct, Andy? Because I know he's featured on that. Uh, and this is through the Emoto um, uh, Institute. And this takes place on, uh, let's see, 10, 16, 2022 in Hamanako, uh, Japan. And uh, actually um, some of the gentlemen that will be at Music and Sky speaking on primary water were just asked to talk at this as well, which is really cool. So, you know, and Foster Gamble is actually involved with this as well, which is cool. So check that out. That's worldwaterfestival.net. So uh, fantastic. All this is coming out right now. Um, yeah, absolutely. I wish I could uh, go to that conference, but I have uh, another obligation at the same time. And, you know, I it, Gerald Pollack and uh, Dolph Zantinga, who are, I believe, both speaking there, um, you know, I have relationships with and they're really amazing in in what uh, the contributions they made to this field. So um, I'll be interviewing Jerry in just a couple of weeks. So people might look out for that because I'm going to I'm going to give him some challenging questions. Have so, you uh, sure, have you interviewed, sure enjoy it. <laughs> have you interviewed Dolph as well? Because Tom Cowan did a fascinating interview with him a couple of years ago or a year ago. Um, and he has the company. Is it? I'm a, I always say it wrong. Yeah, Analemma. Analemma. And I did have a wand that I purchased actually for my wife for Mother's Day. And then I broke it, it fell, it rolled off my uh, desk and broke, but that is a fascinating technology. Have you interviewed him as well, Andy? Yet? Absolutely, um, absolutely. The, I just did my third interview with him actually, and it, it's, um, it's on my library right now, exclusive for my members only, but it will come out in another week or two to the public. And it was fascinating because First of all, we talked a lot about biophotons, um, which is something that he, that's really his foray into studying water. But we, you know, we went into a bit more depth and how he uses them in the research. And then he actually described all of the, you know, sort of clinical research related to the, to the water wand. And he does a unique thing um, that entrepreneurs uh, almost never do, which is he actually, has this testing done by another party that he just pays for to do the project and they you know whatever the outcome is they're not they don't make any profit if they tell him that the wand water was good or bad right because he doesn't want to be biased in in uh, doing that research and so but he describes you know the effect of that it had on plant growth um, the effect in terms of biophotons and then the effect on various biomarkers for aging that he's done some clinical work. And then I encouraged him to do like a real hard target uh, clinical trial um, as well, which he already was looking for a partner. So that was great to see. But yeah, it's really exciting. And, you know, Dolph is a fascinating character because he like left industry he, where he was, you know, the CEO of Dutch Telecom. So that's a pretty sweet position that most people would, you know, really want to be in. Left all that and then used his own personal wealth to finance all this research, 
you know, only now does he have a product that he actually sells for a few bucks. But, you know, all of that was just he, he hired, you know, all these scientists to pay them out of his own funds so that he could have, you know, no interference from the regulatory agencies, from the fi funding agencies. He could just do real science and what he was interested in. It's it's amazing, really, story of what an individual man can achieve when they set their mind uh, to something important. Beautiful, beautiful. Thanks so much, Andy. And uh, we'll put, uh, we have all your links in the show notes below. What's the best place for people to find you? And uh, please let them know, uh, let us know uh, what you're up to uh, for the rest of the summer. Yes. Well, you definitely have to get on my newsletter because um, I have too many sites and offerings to keep track of, but they'll all come to you through that. And that's on andrewkaufmanmd.com. Um, but, you know, I have a couple of really exciting things is, well, I told you that I'm going to be launching this, um, you know, extensive alchemical detox course. We're going to have three live webinars as part of that course, and, and they're going to have um, Steve, uh, the physicist alchemist uh, who had head flux, the former DJ head flux will be on there <laughs> to, talk, to talk about alchemy. And we'll be having Kelly Brogan on there to talk about, um, you know, the food addictions and the psychological aspects of uh, and a detox alchemical transformation. So that's really exciting. And then in conjunction with that, we're going to be launching some new products, including a spagyric product, uh, which will be a spagyric cilantro, and it'll be part of a package that we are re are releasing to address heavy metal toxicity and and conditions related to that, and that'll be um, you know included in the curriculum, of course, of the uh, detox course. So, those are the exciting things uh, coming up um, at the end of the summer. Fantastic. Andy, thanks so much uh, for being with us again. Always a delight to talk to you. And I think uh, this definitely warrants a part two conversation if you're up for that. Absolutely. I love coming and uh, hanging out and talking with you guys. And it's, I think of it much less like work <laughs> and much more <laughs> like, uh, you know, fun uh, hangout time. And then eventually awesome. we need to get you out to the farm to hang out and jump in these waters of ours and experience them yourselves, bring, bring your uh, kids with you and uh, they can hang out. And man, we would love to have you over here. Maybe we could work that into a workshop for both of our communities. Well, yeah. You know, actually I am uh, talking with uh, someone um, about possibly going like on the road and doing the alchemical detox, like, you know, in-person events uh at a few places around the country and if if i'm able to work out something like that i would love to do one right in your neck of the woods and then turn it into a little extended visit because i'm sure we could actually collaborate on quite a number of things <laughs> um that would know, that would be amazing to sit there so um i'm definitely gonna you know try to make that happen in the near future beautiful amazing well in a couple weeks uh in a couple of weeks here, we're uh, having I Am the Living Law workshop with uh, a small group of people here. And so we will be having more and more workshops right here at the farm as well. So we take midday breaks so you can jump in the river and, you know, make it a whole <laughs> kind of lifestyle event, too. 
So uh, always, uh, always be happy to to put you up here and have you out. So we look forward to that. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for joining us in the chat today. If you uh, resonated with this, please give us a thumbs up, share with your friends and family. That really helps get the get this information out better. Uh, and thanks so much for all the support recently on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Alpha Vedic is the way to support us right now or buy our products. Uh, we make them at the farm. So uh, check that out at alphavedic.com. And remember to get yourself uh, outside, get your feet in the ground, go plant something, go for a hike. Mother Nature is our best teacher. Uh, give her some love today okay she'll give you love right back immediately love you guys and we will see you next thursday at 10 a.m cheers